Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exile on Bad Street, and uh, we're continuing the Wrestle from the 80s uh, series with uh, John McAdam. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, and yes, I am joined, as always, on this series by my co-host, John McAdam. So, John, welcome back. Well, Chris, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. I hope your winter's going good. Yeah, um, it's been a crazy winter, hasn't it, weather-wise? <laughs> How much snow have you guys gotten? It has been it has been like hard by New Hampshire standards. I live like in Metro Boston. We've barely gotten anything. I mean, I'm not saying we've gotten nothing, but there have been winters when we've had like 110, 120 inches, and I think we're right around 20, 25 this year. But it's been cold, so. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, some of the other places, you know, God, the Midwest and stuff has been just insane. So. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah. We, we've been lucky so far. Yeah, and we haven't any snow. It's just been a lot of rain. <laughs> rain, rain, rain. I'm telling you, man. Rough. Uh, did, did they get any snow in Atlanta? Uh, did, you know, this year we haven't got any. Well, Atlanta and North, and North Georgia did get some uh, a few weeks ago. But, yeah, down, down south where I'm at in the south metro, no, nothing. Nothing. Not at all. Wow, that's a. I mean, in, Not even way, ice. Like, really, <laughs> it, in a way, it's really, really nice, but you've, I bet you've never thrown a snowball at a person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We get snow. Oh, okay. That's, that's we usually get snow every year. It just hasn't done it this year. Um, you know, last year we got about an inch and a half, you know, to inches. And sometimes, hell, we've had blizzards. So, I mean, it happens. <laughs> it's just rare. Oh, that you know what? That's right. I think about it, and I've seen like Atlanta snow on CNN, and the city shuts down because I mean, you know, <laughs> why would you guys have a bunch of snow re- removal equipment? Yeah, they had that one infamous one that uh, they had people stranded on the roads and stuff, and they I uh, that. yeah they they've gotten a lot better since then. They, they they were embarrassed on that one, so they they <laughs> they are way more prepared now. Like they'll go ahead and put salt on the roads when there's just a threat of a trace of snow. So yeah, they. <laughs> they changed the all game right. on that one. But all right, well, let's get going here. Rest from the 80s, Volume 6. We left off at Volume 5, and we'll uh, resume with Volume 6. And all of these are from the same year. This is all 1981. And we begin. Okay. Yes. I, I, I think I know this tape. I think this. I got this one directly from Dave Meltzer. Oh, there we go. Like really early in my trading days. Awesome. Well, that, that's that's cool. A lot, of, a lot of Georgia and a lot of AWA on this. So. Yeah, Good I know stuff. which one this is. All right, we begin with uh, Harley Race and Tommy Rich. Clips of the title change in Augusta, Georgia on April 27, 1981. And um, this was a very interesting result at the time because, you know, Tommy Rich had been feuding with Race on TV for a long time. And it was just seemed like, you know, it was the right decision to make, but it only lasted the week he won the title on Monday, lost the title on a Friday. So he wasn't able to be in the studio live with the belt, but he did come to the studio and do a taped interview with the title that they aired on television with Freddie Miller. So they didn't actually have him in the studio with the belt, but uh, at the time, what was your thoughts on Tommy Rich being the NWA world champion? Was that a big shock? It was, (coughs) excuse me. Um, I never had an issue with Tommy Rich being NWA champion. However, I had a huge issue with what they were doing with the belt. Um, 
a five-day title reign is it, it's just unacceptable. It brought it really. I think it it hurt Tommy Rich's value in the long run. Actually, maybe even the short and medium run as well. But I think it, it it that was the that was the one title switch that they did that I think really hurt the NWA title when they did the week long reign with Dusty Rhodes. I think I thought that was ridiculous. But okay, you only did it once. Now you've done it twice. You know, twice is a pattern. And now it's almost like even if the title changes hands. Do you believe we're really seeing a new champion? If, if that makes sense, because if he's only champion for five days, it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and the Dusty thing was, you know, Florida was not a national promotion. Yeah, they had penetration in New York, but this is national now. We're in, and TBS is on cable stations everywhere, and Tommy Rich was, you know, Bush is a huge deal, and yeah, you do give him the belt, but again, it's like you said. He only holds it for a few days, and he, he drops it right back. So what good was it, you know? Yeah, and, you know, a lot of wrestling, a lot of sports and entertainment in general is getting emotionally invested in it. Um, if you saw the title change, you know, and, and it's in Gainesville and it's real, you, for, for the next week, you're sitting there saying, okay, you know, you're, you're envisioning what it's going to be like with Tommy Rich's NWA champion. He's going to feud with this guy in this promotion. He's going to feud with that guy in that promotion, He's, et cetera. And once you see that Tommy Rich, like Dusty Rhodes, it, it's been kind of a fake title change. You no longer do that. And, you know, when Kerry Von Erich won the NWA title in 1984, you know, I wasn't a smart fan, but I knew he wasn't keeping it. And, you know, what's the point? and getting excited about Kerry winning the title. And we saw that. We got world class up here. When you went deep down, you knew he wasn't going to keep it. And I think I talked about this on the show. We went to the Meadowlands show mm-hmm. in, on May 29th, 1984, right after Kerry won the title. And they didn't say anything on WTBS about the title switch. So, again, that kind of clued me in that it wasn't going to be real, and it wasn't. And, you know, to me, the Tommy Rich title switch is the one that made made me say, you know, okay, I, I'm not going to get invested in Tommy Rich being the NWA champion or the next guy being the NWA champion. Because you just know that they are, they're playing loose games with the belt, and I think it really hurt the title's credibility. Yeah, because you know they made sure they switched the belt back to Flair for the before that Meadowland show when they were in Japan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, I, so Flair could come back and defend it at the Meadowlands against Steamboat. Yeah, I bumped into and actually had dinner with uh, Bill After and Craig Peters right before that show, and I was like, you know, what's going on? Who's the champion? They explained to me what happened. It was it was kind of what I expected. Yeah, um, it, it would have been a, a nice for Tommy to at least get an Omni match as champion. At least one. But he, that never happened. <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. Never, um, at I least just, one. I just think it was something they should not have done. If you, if you want to make Tommy Rich champion yeah. instead of Harley Race, go right ahead and do it. But don't switch it back five days later. Exactly. Exactly. All right, also from Atlanta, we have uh, clips from the Omni of uh, Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts against Ted DiBiase and the Junkyard Dog. So uh, JYD has now stepped in as DiBiase's partner replacing Robert Fuller, who has uh, left as the booker and gone uh, back to Alabama. So we mentioned uh, JYD and the Freebirds on the previous show, so we don't have to go really in-depth on that one here. 
right. Uh, next, we get something that we uh, definitely need to talk about. Coverage of Vern Gagne's retirement match against Nick Botwinkle in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, I think May 10th, 81. And uh, this is all the uh, free stuff here where we get uh, the mayors of both the Twin Cities recognizing uh, that day as Vern Gagne Day. And he, he gets an award from the governor of Minnesota. And then we get a taped interview by Don Rickles. <laughs> I saw this recently. <laughs> wow. You talk about something odd. And Don Rickles would show up on AWA television. Years later, uh, from from Las Vegas, uh, with Vern in a segment. But uh, here he is in 1981, taping an interview for Vern. Um, crazy stuff, huh? <laughs> I, I think so. And I saw that again, maybe a year or two ago, and it was it was absolutely hilarious because Vern Gagne was trying to verbally spar with Don Rickles which ended up as badly for Vern as if Don Rickles tried to wrestle Vern Gagne. I mean, he was just in <laughs> over his head. This is Don Rickles we're talking about. Yeah, Don Rickles, this is when Don, you know, Don's still at his, at his peak here. I mean, he, people, you know, you see Don Rickles, you know, in his latter years. If you haven't seen him in the 70s and early 80s when he was just rolling, when he was doing D. Martin Rose, the Tonight Show and all that stuff. He was one of the best ever at what he did. He was just amazing. He, I think he's one of the greatest stand-ups ever. When I was in high school, so we're looking at the early 80s, uh, we would get TV Guide, and I would look to see who was going to be on Carson, and if Don Rickles was going to be on, I would set my alarm to you know 11.45 or whatever and get up and watch that. I was, I was that big of a fan. Like him, Rodney Dangerfield, I think that's about it. Oh yeah, if you knew he was on Carson. Yeah, if you knew he was on Carson, yeah, you you, you knew you were in for it. That was know. appointment TV, so that that was a <laughs> exactly. really cool segment. Exactly. And uh, we actually have an angle for the AWA, and you have it in all caps. The AWA actually runs an angle as Sheik at Nano Casey's belly dance, our flirts with Tito Santana. So Sheik knocks her down and then bloodies Tito with his sword. And you said here you never said it was a good angle. <laughs> Talk about how why this was such a rare thing, why the AWA didn't run angles. The, the AWA and the WWF both kept it simple. Um, it was, you know, if they did an angle, it really stood out. You know, I, I like the current product, but unlike Raw, where they, where they run five, six, seven angles a night, the angles really stood out back then. Like, wow, something crazy happened on television. And I think there's something to be said for that, you know, less being more in this case. And, and and people think about Sheik and Nano Casey being a manager. At this time, he was like Botwinkle's top uh, opponent for the world title. You know, in eighty one, it was nothing short of bizarre because I, I don't know how old he was at this time off the top of my head, but he had to be in his late forties. He looked every minute of it. And, and, and of course, you had seen him in the previous incarnation as Billy White Wolf in the seventies. I had, and I remember when they first had a picture of Sheik Adnan in, like, Inside Wrestling. And I was like, no, wait a minute. He grew some <laughs> facial hair, but I recognized him. And, of course, I had to pull out another magazine with a picture of Billy White Wolf and compare the two because I, it couldn't have been that simple. But, yeah, it was, I, was, I, I was like, wow, he, Billy White Wolf is a new person. Whoa. Well, that's the thing because the whole thing with uh, him being injured by Ken Patera was that he never came back to any other promotion in the United States, really. 
he worked Hawaii, but I mean, he mainly worked Hawaii, Middle East, and just these, you know, off the wall places. He didn't work the major promotion. So you actually believe that Ken Pateri ended this dude's career. Yeah, I remember reading a result in one of I think it was the Ring magazine, um, and they had results from Hawaii, and they I saw that he was wrestling out there, and I was like, wow, you know, maybe he's trying to make a comeback, and if you're going to do that, why not try it in a smaller promotion? It's just funny the way you saw things back then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. All right, then we get another Freebirds DiBiase JYD match, and then we get the Vern retirement match where uh, Vern retires as the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. Being that Botwinkle, AWA announced it didn't want to hold a tournament for the title, so announced they're handing it to Botwinkle. And you say, hey, you remember reading that in the magazines and thinking what a joke the AWA was. You yeah, still believe I, that? I, I you know, don't mean to sound like such a, a sour and bitter old man, you know, complaining about titles twice within f- the first five minutes of the show. But my God, I mean, here's Vern... He beats Nick Bockwinkle cleanly in the middle, and they say, let's give Bockwinkle the title. That makes no sense. That's absolutely crazy. And on top of it all, no disrespect towards Nick Bockwinkle, because I, I quickly acknowledge him as one of the greatest ever. But by this time, Bockwinkle having the belt was, was old. I mean, it was time for something new in the AWA and to go back to Nick after all of those years, after you know, clearly we're establishing that Vern's better than Bockwinkle, yet we're putting the title, we're just giving the title to Nick Bockwinkle anyway. I mean, they absolutely, A, I thought going back to Bockwinkle was a bad move, even though it worked. And B, if they, if they were sold on going back to Bockwinkle, have a tournament. At least you could say Nick won the tournament. Exactly. It just made no sense. Absolutely. Or just get, here, get here's another gift. idea. Have Vern yeah. lose the title before retiring. Yeah, exactly. I know that you don't want to get in the way of <laughs> Vern's ego or anything, but No, no, not at all. No. So yes, that I always thought that was ridiculous too when I uh, saw how that happened and when I saw this for the first time. But take consideration who it is, it's Vern Ganya, so <laughs> that's par for the course, as they say. All right, uh, next we have clips of Brody in Georgia, which we talked about that uh, in previous shows. Ken Patera won the Georgia Boy title from Tommy Rich. Ken Patera had been in the WWF um, and, and had left there and done some other you know, stuff like St. Louis. And now he shows up in Georgia. And it's argued at this time that Patera was probably one of the best workers in the world. And seeing him here on TBS, I mean – that that was a really big boost for their promotion, wouldn't you say? I totally agree. I mean, they put the Georgia title on Patera. It looked like they were going to make him by far the number one heel. At this point, I, I may I've definitely said this somewhere before. I mean, you could have easily put the NWA title on Ken. Patera. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, absolutely. he was that good, and to this day, I, I'll, I'll tell a story about this. I've wondered what happened as far as Ken Batera up and leaving that promotion. You know, I, apparently with no notice, he didn't, he didn't lose the title back. Um, back in, I want to say 2000 or 1999, right around then, I got an email from someone and it said, hey, I'm a friend of Ken Batera and we're uh, giving him a 60th birthday party. 
And boy, we would sure like to have some footage of Ken. Can you send me a tape? And I was like, yeah, I'll send you two tapes of nothing but Ken Patera. All I ask in return is a, is a quick phone call from Ken. And he's like, all right, we'll do that. So I send him the tapes, and of course, I never get the phone call. All <laughs> I've wanted to know for over almost 40 years now is what happened. Why did Patera leave? That almost never happened in wrestling uh, back then, where a guy just stormed out and left the title behind. And if anyone knows, contact me. That's like the, th- great, the great wrestling mystery to me is like exactly what happened. Yeah. Cause he, he he no showed, uh, and he eventually he he went to work with uh, Bosch. He worked some Houston shows, um, and then he goes to the AWA. Yeah, um, I think I remember hearing something that once George Scott became the Booker, that he just up and quit because him and George Scott had some type of heat from their days in Crockett. Oh wow! So I mean that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's the exact reason why, because Robley, but Robley's the one that brought Patera in and when he was booking. And, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I don't have a definitive answer, but yeah, it was I mean, weird it, that he, he just left. It's the kind of thing where back then that's the kind of stuff that would get you blackballed. Even if you're Ken Patera and you're, yeah. you're that good, you know, if, if I'm working, let's say, the Florida promotion, or excuse me, if I'm booking or owning the Florida promotion, and Patera calls and wants a job after he does that, I, you know, you can't blame yourself for kind of questioning whether or not you're going to bring him in. Yeah, but I guess, but well, you know, look, look where he went. Though. I mean, we went and worked at AWA, which they're not an NWA promotion, technically. Mm-hmm. And he worked St. Louis, which was, you know, Vern had points in the office. So kind of, you know. A friendly promotion, so yeah. I mean, it wasn't like he worked in WA groups much after this. So. Uh, no, not at all. I believe. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. um, he went to the AWA, and if you look at it, he went from being the top guy in Georgia after having that you know it, big run in the WWF, and now he's in a tag team in the AWA. And I know you know a lot of guys would kill for a spot like that. Don't get me wrong. But it's not being the top guy in Georgia. It's not headlining Madison Square Garden, being in a tag team with Crusher Blackwell. And they didn't. Well, well, you know the tag. It was original Bobby Duncan. Oh, that's the right. Black and Blue Express, and they never even won the tag titles. <laughs> they no. never could beat the High Flyers. That's so right. yeah, it, yeah. And then he hooked up with Blackwell, you know, in '83, and then they won the belts. But uh, yeah, it took a while. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, now we go to some WWF stuff here as uh, we have a match from the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland. Mill Mascaris against Sergeant Slaughter. In your words here, Sarge won the best wrestlers in the world at this point, but even he couldn't have a decent match with the lazy, overrated Mascaris. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you this. Have you seen the clip of this week where Mill Mascaris did a, a planche off the top rope in Japan at 79 years old. I, I have not seen it. I yeah, it, it's sad. <clears throat> it's sad. It, it's sad in a way because it takes him forever to get to the top, up to the top rope, but he hits it. <laughs> I, well, I won't be doing that at 79. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. I, in here, in my own defense, I probably wrote that in like 1988 <laughs> and then I actually, believe it or not, I would have people, you, you, some of, you're all going to laugh at this. 
I used to type my list out on a typewriter, okay? And oh, yeah. I half the audience just went to Google to find out what a typewriter <laughs> was. Yeah. And I, I finally, like, uh, 94, 95, got around to, like, you know, the digital age where we have things, you know, on, a, on uh, digitally. And I would send out my tape list to people who would type this stuff out for me, and I'd send them tapes in return for their labor of, you know, doing this for me. So even into, like, you know, the 2000s, something I wrote in 1988 remained and I was was just way too hard on Mil Moscaris. I really was. Yeah, but he does have a rep. So I mean, it is what it is. I mean, he he was lazy and he was hard to do business with, and he tried to rely on his star power and everything. So I mean, you're you're not way far off of what other people said about him. I mean, but he hey, he was over. He was a star. So. Exactly. It it worked for him. I give him credit for – I didn't give him enough credit for the things – his positives. I mean the negatives were there. Yeah, he could be lazy. He was way overrated. Maybe it's not his fault that he was Bill Apter's favorite wrestler (coughs) – excuse me – and afterwards keep putting him on magazine covers, you know? Yeah. And Slaughter was one of the best wrestlers in the world at this point as well. So you weren't lying there. He (laughs) won. Slaughter was amazing. Yeah, you weren't lying there, folks. I'll tell you that. Definitely. All right, also, WF match from the Spectrum. Manisa Morocco defeats Pedro Morales for the Intercontinental title and uses the brass knuckles. And, um, yeah, this is Morocco's first big title in WWF in his first run. Uh, Pedro just recently passed away. And, um, yeah, I mean, your thoughts on the Morocco-Morales feud. They had a, a lot of high-profile matches. They they really did, and to me this was a huge title change. I don't know why, um, but it authenticated the Intercontinental title for me. Like that when that title changed hands and they put it on Morocco for whatever reason, my sixteen year old brain at the time said, Okay, this is a real title now. Um they brought it in as the North American title in seventy nine. Uh, Pat Patterson won it from Ted DiBiase. They changed the name of it, they made up some goofy story about, you know, a tournament. Um and it, it had been around. Patera won it, then Morales won it, and then Morocco won it. But for whatever reason, like this was the match that made that title uh, cross the finish line for me. It was it was a big deal to me now. Yeah, I mean Morales. I mean he was a former world champion, you know, for WWF at the time. So you had that as well. You did beat the guy who held the, the title for four was it four years or something like that. So hell, I mean that's a feather Morocco's got plus Morocco was another guy who, when he was on, he was one of the best wrestlers in the world in this era as well. So He was yeah. at his absolute peak in 1981. Yeah, so, I mean, you... It, it was the right call to make, for sure. If you could put the title in by it, Morocco would have been the guy, no doubt. Yeah, and I, I've said this before, but one of the great mysteries in pro wrestling, to me, is how did they not bring Pedro Morales back in 1977 to go around the horn against superstar Billy Graham? Like to, That, to me, is is a crazy omission. Yeah, especially when they had worked together in Florida. You know? Yeah. Around the same, around the same time. Like Morales was was that busy he was in the awa and florida those are both nice spots but it's not headlining madison square garden or the philadelphia spectrum 
Um, but in this run, Pedro really was such a great number two to Bob Backlund. He did his job really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on. And we go back to Georgia, the TV match uh, from the studio as a uh, Terry Gordon and Jimmy Snooker face Butch Reed and George Wells. Uh, Butch Reed and George Wells are kind of being pushed as a little team at this point in time. Bru- uh, more like Bruce Reed at this time, not Butch yet. Uh-huh. And, uh, Gordian Snuka, of course, a team that had a, a short run, and we talked about them before, but a team that had a short run, but what an impact they made in that short run, didn't they? They, they sure did. I mean, they were, they had great charisma together. Uh, ter- you know, by getting away from Michael Hayes, and don't get me wrong, the Freebirds were fantastic. But Gordy, when he was out there with Jimmy Snuka, it showed me that he didn't need Michael Hayes. He wasn't just a, a, the Robin to Michael Hayes Batman. Like Terry Gordy, when I saw those two together, it was like, wow, these, this is a, uh, he's going to be a big star. He already was a big star. Yeah, I mean, Gordy did more, more than held his own, for sure, as a performer when he was outside of Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts, anytime he any, did anything, you you knew what he could do. It was like Gordy, Gordy knew that Hayes was the guy, so he took the step back. He, I mean, it's kind of like when you when you put two two great players on a team together, any sports team together, and one is like the definitive team, you know, the team leader, then the other guy will, you know, more often than not take the step back, you know, and be the mm-hmm. second guy on the team. Um, so it, you get, just know your role and Gordy knew his role and you would, and, and you would need to be done to be successful. And, but he, but when he was given the ball, then he knew what, you know, what to do when he had it. So yeah, exactly. So there you go. Um, I, I'm like everyone else. I mean, we all, I, well, not everyone, but most people agree that yeah, Stuka made a lot more money, uh, as a baby face, but, I just aesthetically, I enjoyed his role as a heel far more. Oh well, he, he was great as a heel for all those years, you know, working with Crockett and uh, here in Georgia, and then his, his first, you know, part in WWF. I mean, he was tremendous as a heel. That's how he got over. I, I actually, <laughs> I liked him in Crockett in Georgia a lot better than I ever liked him in the WWF. Well, he had Albano, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they had to make him fit in the WWF, and I get that. But when he had, you know, he was at, out there with that big old Panama Jack hat, yeah. like a drug dealer. Yes. I, I loved it. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, also from Georgia Television, uh, Michael Hayes, who had just turned babyface. We get footage of him, uh, some promos. And, yes, my, as much as we, we just talked about Gordy doing good, you know, being away from Hayes, Hayes excelled here. As a when after he turned babyface and cut some of the best promos uh, of that time period, uh, especially his babyface return promo, which was just simply amazing five star promo, and you got to see the true depth of what Michael Hayes was here at this point in time. You know, M- Michael Hayes, like I can pinpoint, like right in 1989 when they brought Jimmy Garvin in as the new Freebird, it was almost like he gave up on the wrestling business. He fell off a cliff, but before that, Michael Hayes was one of the Elite players in the game, in my opinion. Um, I th- this is I mean this is a compliment. I think if Michael Hayes had taken better care of himself physically, could have been one of the biggest stars ever. I mean, he could have been right up there with Hulk Hogan. 
He had he definitely but had the, gotta, the you gap. You do more than just hit the bench press. You got to watch what you eat if you know what I'm saying. Well, all that drinking too, <laughs> you know. Uh, that, I mean too. that that I, aged. Got to take that into account. I mean, you look at Hayes. You look at Hayes, and especially in the late '80s, early '90s, and like, man, look how much he aged from the you know just five or six years earlier. You know, hard living. Oh, I I remember he was feuding with Lex Luger in nineteen. He's younger than Luger, and I think he get. No, go ahead. I was thinking he was younger than Luger. I'm checking to make sure. All right, Hayes was born Mar- March 29th, 1959, so he was 30 in that feud. Luger was born June 2nd, 1958. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Think about that, and folks. He would come out, and he would say, Mike Hayes, you know, I'm 29 years old. Lex Luger is 29 years old, but I've had 10 years in the business. He's had less than five. I remember at the time, I was watching it with the girl who was my girlfriend at the time, and she just says, he is not 29 years old, <laughs> and meaning that there's no way. And I looked it up. I was like, wow, he is 29. She's like, he's the, he's the world's oldest 29-year-old. I was like, that's okay. Paulie dangerously is the world's youngest 23, 24-year-old or whatever he was. <laughs> Hayes was the reverse Dick Clark. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's wild. wild but you know, it, it sounds like I'm I'm bagging on him only because I am. But it, before all of that happened, I mean, he really was great. Um, Tremendous. When he won the United States title in 1989, like I thought, okay, Michael Hayes is finally getting the singles push he has long deserved. And I thought he was going to hold that title for a while. Nope, three weeks. <laughs> Jobbed in on a, on a on a worldwide taping in Bluefield, West Virginia. <laughs> Of all places. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of Gordy and Snooker, uh, they join Ken Patera here as Ken Patera does a demonstration of, of his strength, which includes all the normal stuff. But at, the, at one point, they bring out cinder blocks, which Snooker piles them on Patera's chest, smashes them with a sledgehammer. And when Gordon Soli is talking about how dangerous this is, uh, and talking about how the fans shouldn't try this. Terry Funk, I'm Terry, about Terry Gordy grabbed the microphone and said, yes, please, try this at home. You need to. <laughs> yeah, he said, all you little kids, make sure you try this at home. And, Gor- and Gordon Soley's expression was priceless. He went into a panic. Obviously, Terry Gordy was not supposed to say that. <laughs> Real, Truly one of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. If you have not seen that, make it a point to find it somewhere. Yeah, it, it is hilarious. It, it, it's great stuff, definitely. I saw it live, and I thought I was going to die laughing. I just started getting WTBS, and they had that, and I was oh, – it was tremendous. Well, you know, you had seen Patera do the string stuff before, but they never used cinder blocks. This was a, a different twist to it. More impressive. Um. Yeah, I mean – and Because he did the hot water bottle. He did the hot water bottle and the, uh, you know, uh, bending the steel and stuff like that. But the center blossom and the sledgehammer is a whole different story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there there obviously is a trick to all of those things because we've seen various wrestlers use all of them. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. Next up, we go back to WWF. We have uh, the Moondogs losing the WWF Tattoos to Tony Guerrero and Rip Martel, who regained the belts. Uh, 
this is another few, it's a, a very underrated feud. These two teams, which you know, both incarnation of the Moon Dogs and Gorilla Martel, they had some really good matches against each other. But did it kind of surprise you that Gorilla Martel got the got the belts back, or did were you expect very much so? Another, okay, so you were you were expecting another tag team to get it? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, think about it. That was something that had never been done before, where a tag team, you know, usually all, always as soon as a tag team, a babyface tag team lost the WWF tag team titles, they would almost immediately split up and actually almost immediately leave the area. And that didn't happen here. They just hung around. And at first I'm like, okay, they're just doing rematches or something. But no, they, you know, they came back and regained the titles. And I was, I was very surprised like long-term when they announced that they were having the match on TV. Um, I think by this point, and this is just kind of dumb the way they did things back then. Um, Fuji and Saido, I believe, had already debuted on as a tag team with Albano as a manager on TV. And the Moondogs still had the tag team title, so you knew what was going to happen next. So when the, the actual match was announced, I was not at all surprised. But if you had told me you know, when they, when they lost the titles that they would be getting them back, I would have been shocked because, like I said, unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, again, because it just didn't happen. There was, a, there was a formula, and that was not part of the formula. This is a veering away from the formula. And it was in the formula itself. I mean, I guess it worked, but it was so boring. I mean, everyone knew if you watched WWF TV for a year, you absolutely knew what was going to happen with the tag team titles. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's that's one thing about the Hogan expansion that I liked is they no longer had that dumb formula. Yeah. And speaking of tactile change, AWA here is uh, the East-West Connection win the AWA tag titles from the High Flyers here. Uh, Greg Gunn got injured a pile driver and uh, caused them to lose the titles. And your your words here, no offense to AWA fans out there, but this group was damn lucky they operated without real competition as this struck <laughs> you as a really lame territory. <laughs> oh, God. Me and my 23-year-old big mouth coming back to haunt me again. Adonis and Ventura were a great tag team. Now, Jesse, Jesse was terrible in the ring, but Adonis more than made up for it. There there's, was an old expression about them that Adonis did the wrestling and Ventura did the talking. And Ventura was excellent on the stick, but I'll tell you what, so was Adrian Adonis. I think that, that kind of gets lost in the mix. Adonis was... He was like a, a wild card when he was on the microphone. You like oh, never yeah. knew what he was going to talk about. He was probably definitely under the influence of something, and they just didn't know what was going to be said. <laughs> a wrestler in the 80s? Come on. <laughs> I know, right? Now we have an- something from AWA television. Hulk Hogan versus Sonny Rogers. They didn't know it, but the AWA would never be the same as Hulk debuts the heel. Soon turn Bayface, leaves AWA at the biggest gates, then helps destroy it when he just WF, and drove the AWA out of most of the key cities. Yes, Hulk Hogan's debut in AWA with Johnny Banyan as his manager. Um, you had seen Hulk in WF as a heel, you know, feuding with Andre and Backlund and Tony Alice and those guys, and here they bring him in with Johnny Valiant as his manager. That one's kind of an odd one, wasn't it? It was a very odd one because Johnny Valiant had not been in the AWA since like the mid seventies and you know, he would he had never been a manager before as far as I knew. Um the story is and because it's Hogan, we're never gonna find out what the truth was that Vince Sr. had made a deal to send him to the Carolinas 
um, after his WWF run. And Hogan was like, you know, no, I'd like to go make Rocky three. And McMahon, it, it soured his relationship with McMahon Sr. And Sr., according to someone, it might have been Hogan, tried to get him blackballed. And that's how he wound up going to the AWA. I, like I said, I don't know how true that is because it's Hogan. You never know. But that was the story. Think about how different wrestling would have been if Hogan goes to the Carolinas instead. As a heel. Yes. Think about that. Yeah, and I don't know who who came up with the idea to make him a babyface because he was far from the traditional pro wrestling babyface. He was a huge guy, and usually huge guys, you know, they were heels. That's just the way the, the business went. The tall, blonde guy with the muscles who's bigger than everybody, okay, well, he'll lose to the underdog babyface. And someone had the vision to make Hulk Hogan a, a babyface, and here we are. Yeah, I'd say it worked out pretty well. <laughs> All right, there next. is a story. Yeah. It's more than a story. I've seen it. Um, Vern Gagne was saying that Hulk Hogan would would never be an effective world champion because he was too big, and no one would believe that anyone could beat him. Now, if Vern had said that in 1982, 1983, okay. He said it in 1987. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. I think we've already proven that it works. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. All right, next we got a couple of mass superstar matches. Uh, him at the Omni against Tommy Rich, which you said Rich bleeds. What a shocker. And then him, yeah. from the t- him from the studio against Bruce Reed. Superstars just come back into the territory. Uh, George Scott's brought him in to be the lead heel. And um, superstar, everybody, you know, Bill Eady. He gets, you know, everybody remembers demolition and stuff and talk about you know th- those runs. But in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, the superstar was, in, especially in Crockett, Georgia, as big as it got when it comes to top guys in the territory. Despite the mask, the mask superstar could have held the NWA title. That's how much, how highly I think of him. He was a tremendous in this time. Yeah. Um. George Scott, oh my God, he has got to be one of the worst on-air characters <laughs> in wrestling history. He's like, he's like the frustrated dad who comes out and just like yells at his kids, but in this case, it's the wrestlers, and they just have to put up with it. And I remember they did an angle where George Scott came out. It was after... Um, Mass superstar Tor Kamada and Ray Stevens destroyed Tommy Rich in the cage, mm-hmm. and they suspended Mass superstar George Scott comes out and you know he yells at him the way he'd yell at a little kid. You're suspended for thirty days, and poor Mass superstar has to sell it because he's going to Japan, obviously, and he's like thirty days. What am I going to do now? And I thought it was hilarious, but it, at the same time, it, it's. George Scott just made the heels look bad. He was, like I said, one of the worst on-air characters ever. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he was not an effective character on the air for sure. That's why I guess why his brother Sandy got uh, did most of the promos, uh, you know, for, for the family. I guess <laughs> when, yeah, when they had on-air stuff in Crockett. You know, Sandy and Scott know was out there more. Have, yeah. Or you should have an on-air authority figure. Just don't go too far with it. Like, uh, Jack Tunney was perfect. Yeah, exactly. You know, just come on, make his announcement every, you know, two or three times a year, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, next we get um, Bawinkle against Sheikha Adnan from St. Paul, which we talked about them earlier. All right, Bruno Sammartino announces his upcoming retirement match against George Animal Steel. Ironically held in the first ever card at New Jersey Meadowlands. And you sit here, I remember being pissed that WF couldn't come up with a better opponent for this to soar about than pathetic George the Animal Steel. <laughs> it, it, it's true. I mean, I think they should have done more with Bruno's retirement. Um, if you... If you lived where I lived, I mean, I lived in Metro Boston, Nashville, New Hampshire, and we got WOR on cable, so I got to see that promo that, you know, Bruno's last match was going to be against George Steele. Obviously, it turned out not to be that way, but, um, you know, I, I think they should have done more with Bruno's retirement. I think the, they should have had, I would not, not called it a retirement tour, but I think he should have had a retirement match in Boston. I think he should have had one in Philly. I think definitely one in Pittsburgh, maybe one in Baltimore. Yeah. You know, just give everyone a chance to say goodbye. Yeah, I, yeah, you're you're right on that, and uh, you know they were opening up the Meadowlands and they were using that as a draw, but uh, and Steel was kind of like one of Bruno's proteges in a way. Bruno yeah. helped him get really get started in the business, so there was that. But yeah, it <laughs> they 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 probably should have got somebody better, but you know, supposedly that batch didn't even draw. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. That's for sure. So. uh I mean, you have that Madison Square Garden, and you're filling up the felt for them. Yeah, exactly. All right, next we get uh, more Georgia here. Andre to John Michael Hayes against Gordian Snuka. So Hayes brought Andre in as one of his big partners, uh, which eventually led up to Hayes and Otis Sistrunk becoming the Georgia Tag Team Champions. Yes, former Oakland Raider, University of Mars uh, zone Otis Sistrunk. And I, I know that you don't have we're not have that on this tape, but that you talk about make a title seem seem you know like worthless in a way. Otis sister being one half of the Georgia Tag Team Champions, really. You know, I I look I, I look at it two different ways. Like I totally get what you're saying. I mean, this guy is not even a wrestler, and you're already giving him a huge spot. But he was Otis Sistrunk. He was a big name in football. Um, and he was a tough guy. And you would think that if you want, if you're going to have Otis Sistrunk get into the business, you're not, he's not going to do it if he has to start at the bottom. So you have to make it worthwhile for him. You have to show him that he's getting a push. And he just never caught on. And he was gone quickly. I want to say like a month maybe he lasted. Mm-hmm. Yep, and the titles were vacated. And they, yeah. they 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 created the national tag team champions uh, out for that on the Thanksgiving tournament. So this is the end of the Georgia tag titles here. So, yep. Now also at this time, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and which was won by Brad and Bob Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And yep. I remember they had Roddy Piper interviewing Brad Armstrong. Brad came out. Excuse me, he was interviewing Bob Armstrong. Brad said he took his money. It was a uh, twenty-five thousand dollars a piece, and Brad bought bought a Corvette. And Piper comes out and he's he's badgering Bob Armstrong about you know not letting his his kids not obviously not taking care of his money. And that was like the first Piper's pit ever. And and you know what the whole uh, the Corvette thing was a shoot. Brad really bought a Corvette. 
<laughs> yeah. I've seen pictures of Brad with the Corvette so, in like wrestling's main event. Yeah, so he bought the Corvette. It was a shoot. Yeah, and it, I think it's really cool that you know they worked that into a storyline. But that was the first time like Piper in that role as a commentator had a had a. Uh, an interview where he kind of egged someone on. Yes. He was, you know, confronting them. This was the beginning of and, it. And, yeah. you know, two and a half years later, we have Piper's pit. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Piper was so great in that role in Georgia. He really was. Oh, yeah. Also from George TV, we have Kevin Von Ehr versus Jimmy Superfly Snuka. And uh, that was an excellent match. Yeah, tremendous TV match. And Kevin Von Ehr. Working the working for George Championship Wrestling this time didn't last long, but I thought he could have done a whole lot more if he would have stayed in Georgia. But Kevin's a guy who's admitted he's a homebody. He loves being at home, and he just got tired of not being at home, and he just left when went back home. So yeah. he admitted that's what why he basically left Georgia. But for the short time he was here, I mean, you could tell that you know he could have been a. a bigger star in Georgia than where, where they went with it. No. And it proved that, I mean, we already, we, I think we would all know that Kevin didn't need to be Fritz von Erich's son to be a big star in wrestling. And I'm actually glad he had that short run in Georgia because a, he kind of proved that. And B it, it was, it was kind of cool seeing Kevin von Erich away from Dallas because 95 to 98 percentage of the footage of him out there is from Dallas. And it, it was just cool to see him somewhere else. It's either Georgia or St. Louis or Japan. That's bad. I mean, that's it. Other than, other than that, that yeah. that's it. That's all you get coming on Eric is a uh, world-class stuff. So, or maybe yeah, I think mid South. He did what he wanted to do and no one's going to fault him for that. But you know, he, like I said, it, it would have been cool seeing all of the Von Eric's outside of Dallas more. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Then we get another Nick Von, Nick by Winkle Bar- uh, She got another Casey match. Uh, and then uh, the tape ends with Ric Flair making his first appearance on TBS as the NWA champion. And your words, a legend is born. And of course, Rick just uh, celebrated his 70th birthday as we uh, record this. And uh, you mentioned we mentioned Tommy Rich being an NWA champion. Of course, he drops it to Harley. Harley drops it to Dusty. You know, just a little over a month later at the Omni. And, uh, of course, Dusty holds the title for three months. And then Flair gets it. And your thought process on seeing Flair on TBS with the belt. You know, he's like, are you like, finally, now we have somebody that's going to probably hold the belt for a long time? Or what were, what were your thoughts? Okay, I have to correct something I said. I did not see the Gordy and Snuka and Patera feats of strength thing live. I actually saw it on the Sunday show Maybe like six weeks, maybe six weeks after I started getting WTBS. Um, so, but I, I, I mean, I, I didn't see it when it happened, but I saw it like, I don't know, maybe three or four months later. The very first time I saw WTBS, Ric Flair came out with the NWA title, and I had no idea that we were going to see that. And, you know, because the magazines ran like six to eight weeks behind. And when I saw it, I did ex- accept it as being real because he was on TV with it, and they talked about him beating Dusty Rhodes. And it was 
I mean, Ric Flair was, I'd, I'd never seen him on television before. If I did, it was like maybe like once or twice. But he was one of my favorite wrestlers just by seeing him in the magazines. I thought that highly of him. So I had the feeling we were on to something great. And Rick, supposedly Rick's first run with the NWA title from uh, September 81 until June 83 was not terribly successful at the box office because uh, a lot of the uh, fans in the different areas just didn't know who he was. But I thought that reign was great. I mean, he had so many excellent matches, uh, excellent feuds, etc. Yeah, his first reign really was tremendous because he went, I mean, he went everywhere. He established himself as one of the top stars in the business. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they gave him, they gave him the rope and he took it and he, you know, he held on and did everything he needed to do. And they had got faith in that this guy can be on, you know, a champion as many times we want to be champion. He can handle it. So absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We, I think, you know, he, they could have made him NWA champion as early as 1978, maybe even 77. Yeah. Well, we actually have a little time here to uh, do another, another quick take because this one doesn't have a whole lot to talk about. So we can knock two of them out. All right. All right. As we go to volume seven, uh, this seven begins with Sardar Sardar versus Wahoo McDaniel, a TV match for the U S heavyweight title. And, uh, if you want to watch this folks on WWE network, so uh, go check it out. And, you know, we talk about Slaughter, um, what well, he was in 81. Wahoo was a guy in that time period who was a great opponent for Slaughter. And, they, and these two guys had a really strong feud in Crockett this time. They did. And Wahoo had been in and out of Crockett for the past couple of years. And by putting the U.S. title on him, at least for a little while, it kind of established that, you know, hey, Wahoo, who was a legend in that area, was back and kind of back to stay. Um, Slaughter... I remember, like, you know, picking up a magazine and seeing that he had won the United States title, which, you know, blew me away. I mean, I had no idea he was even in Crockett. I just, you know, bang, he's there, and he won their most important singles title. Well, it shows you how much they thought of him, and, you know, he probably should have won one of the titles in WF. Of course, it didn't happen, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Crockett was all in on, uh, on Slaughter, no doubt, at that point in time. They really were pushing him. Of course, after he loses the U.S. title, he becomes one half of the world tag champion. So <laughs> he he held a belt for a long time. Some title he held in, in Pride. He had some gold. And uh, again, like I said, he, Network, check it out, folks. It's on there. And, and once again, it's cool to see an in-prime Sergeant Slaughter doing something other than being in the WWF. I mean, yeah, I know he's under the mask in, in the AWA or whatever, but in that role with that gimmick – you know, showing that yeah, it work. It's going to work everywhere, not just in the WWF. And without a manager, I mean, we got Grand Wizard in WWF. He didn't have a manager in Crockett, so that is correct. He carried the ball. I mean, everyone had a man. Every heel in the WWF had a manager. That's just the way it went. One, the one exception was Larry Zbysko, and I remember Jesse Ventura complaining about it, saying, you know, he I, that he didn't need Fred Blassie. And I'm not saying he needed him. It's just that's the way it went in the WWF. They weren't going to take you seri- seriously if you didn't have a manager. Exactly. Uh, also from Midland Television, also on WWE Network, uh, Roddy Piper against Jack Briscoe. Um, this was a fun match for sure. And 
and, and Piper and Briscoe seems like the total yin and yang. So it's a great combination for a match and an angle and a feud here. Because Piper's so loud and vociferous and Briscoe is mild-mannered and, you know, speaks softly. And this is really good stuff. It was. It, it, I'll tell you something. If we had to go back in time, let's say 30 years, and I, and I have to put together a four-hour tape of just the best wrestling I could put together, that entire segment might make it because it was that good. You had Brody Piper. They had some deal where Briscoe was putting up, I think, $5,000 uh, versus the title. And they hand Piper the money, and he counts it. He's like, "You're scum, man. You're scum. This, you know, it wasn't enough money." And Wahoo comes out with the extra money, saying that it was the Fourth of July holiday, and the banks were closed, <laughs> and that's why Jack couldn't get all of the money. I mean, talk about going back in that time yes. here. And then Piper wins the match with a foreign object. And you know what? Like, like Chris said, if you have not seen this. Uh, it is whatever, it is July 1982, yeah. whatever date comes after 4th of July. And it would have been July the 10th. It phenomenal. The July 10th, the, July 10th, 10th there okay. because remember uh, July 3rd, 82, is back when Flair at the studio, the day before the 4th, and, and, and it's at TBS. Yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah, Flair back was on the 4th the next night, on Sunday. So, yep. All right, okay. uh, next we have Law Jerry Law and Bill Dundee versus Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy from Memphis Television in 1979. And this is the debut of the Freebirds in Memphis. And Terry Gordy does this amazing introduction from Michael Hayes. Uh, this is 18-year-old Terry Gordy, basically. And Michael Hayes is standing there with a towel over his head. And they pull the towel off. Gordy talking about how beautiful this man is. And they pull the towel off, revealing Michael Hayes, and Hayes cuts his promo while Lawler and Dundee are in the ring, you know, with his smirks on their faces, basically laughing at this whole thing. And they go in there and they have a hell of a match. Um, this this is about the, you know, other than, uh, you know, basically, I mean, really nothing. I, the Google stuff isn't even on tape, really. This is the earliest Freebird stuff that's on tape. Oh, I, I actually have some stuff from the Gulf Coast with the Freebirds, like be, from before okay. that. But this is this comes in yeah. second place. Um, yeah, the, Hayes comes out with the towel on his head and he takes it off and he looks like a transitioning ferret <laughs> cross. He he, I mean, yes. he's got the hair. It, 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 the whole segment was phenomenal. And Gordy's got blonde hair. Oh, that's B right. Blonde, blonde, curly hair. Yes. And Jerry Lawler, it's 1978, so he's got that r ridiculous Mr. Connor Yeah, he looks perm. like uh, he should be on, uh, he should be, um, oh, God, Robert Reed from the Brady Bunch when he had his perm. <laughs> there you go. But, yeah. I am so proud that I never got a perm <laughs> in the 70s. But this, was, but this was a really good TV match, and they would eventually have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, arena matches. And Lawler got pissed off because how the Freebirds got over with the fans because they were using music. And he basically got them uh, de-pushed because of that reason, because he thought they were upstaging him. The first time I had ever seen wrestling music used was 1980 when the Freebirds were in Mid-South, and I got that on cable. And it blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, why isn't everyone doing this? And within four years, literally everyone was doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
All right, our next match was a steel cage match from the Spectrum as Bob Backlund defended their title against Greg the Hammer Valentine. Um, and this was one of those matches uh, with the first to walk out the door. And you talk about how disappointing the WFK matches were. So it's a good match. But, yeah, when you're watching other cage matches in other territories, you know, where guys are, you know, just going out there and bashing each other and they're pinning each other in the cage. The WF cage rules definitely uh, put a, like a wet paper bag over it, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I've told it on this show. I mean, when I was a, a kid, the idea of a cage match just captivated my imagination. And then came the day when I saw one, <laughs> and it just was not anywhere near as good as I had imagined. Yeah, and, and, and this, again, this is a – I mean, they're using real steel cage this time. There is no blue cage, but uh, still, you had to go through the door. Then that was, that's how they won the match. So not the best way of ending matches. And we'll talk more about back on Valentine and, and as we have another match coming up. Um, next, we have the Funk Lawler Empty Arena match. We talked about that ad nauseum. Uh, Adrian Adonis and Pedro Morales. Uh, Intercontinental Talk at the Garden. Uh, three and a half star match. And you talk about how Adrian carried the pathetic champion to a good match. Uh, Adrian was a guy who, you know, him and Ventura both from WWF at the same time, and they teamed up, but they pushed them both as singles guys more than they, they did as tag guys. Did you th think that was an interesting way to go, or you think they should have been pushed heavier as a tag team? I would have liked to have seen Adonis and Ventura win the tag team titles. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I would have gone about doing that because the uh, – of the timing of it, the Strongbows came in right, kind of right after Adonis and Ventura were kind of finishing up. Um, but you know what? I mean, I, I do understand that you know the the main event spot is where the money is. The tag team title spot is, was not where the money was, and both Adonis and Ventura, you know, were main eventers. And I'm sure there there was a reason they didn't want to do that. But it's something I would have liked to have seen. And it was it was really cool. I thought the way they pushed Adonis and Ventura because it was almost like they were a faction, almost like, you know, kind of the horsemen except smaller and they didn't do horsemen things, but you know what I'm yeah. saying? They were regular tag team. Partners. Absolutely. Uh, the WWF, I'm trying to think of if they had done that with anyone else uh, between, because they kind of did that with Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody as well. Um, they would frequently team up on TV and at the arenas, but they weren't, you know, a, they weren't a threat to win the tag team title. Yeah, they, yeah, that's a good call. I haven't thought about that like that, but yeah, I mean, an established tag team that they broke up, yeah, that's, that didn't happen. Didn't happen that often. No, the, yeah, but you could tell like they were attached at the hip, but they were wrestling as singles. So, like I said, you know, was and bringing them in was really cool because it was it was something that I had never seen before. First of all, we'd never seen either Adonis or Ventura in the WWF, but two guys coming at the same time as singles with the same manager. So I, I like yeah. it a lot. All right, next we get um, Backlund and Adonis. Lumberjack match from the Cap Center on February, from February 1982. Three and a quarter star match. Um, Adonis had quite a few matches against Backlund for the title. But uh, I'll, I'm also going to talk about the Cap Center real quick. Um, for people that don't know, the Cap Center shows would air on USA Network. And mm -hmm. USA Network would show garden shows and stuff like that. But 
yeah, they would show the Cap Center shows as well. Um, people, and again, we're talking about the early days of USA Network. USA Network was way more of a sports network in this era than there were anything else. They showed a ton of sports. So uh, talk about that and the back on Adonis uh, match. Well, I mean, I, you know, not to get off track, but I mean, I remember one Saturday they had Oklahoma and Colorado on back when at like seven thirty at night back when we only got one game per week and it was on three thirty on a Saturday, you know, and just staying home and watching Oklahoma run the wishbone and my girlfriend not being happy about it. <laughs> um, but USA used to be this um I might have already mentioned this on the show, but it was kind of a low-rate cable network. I mean, if, if they had a tape of anything, they would show it. I mean, they were showing, like, old cartoons, old sitcoms that, like, no one ever cared about. But, yeah, they've come a long way. I give them credit. But, yeah, I wasn't even aware at the time that if I looked closely enough, I'd be able to see a, a major house show from the WWF on that network. Never saw one live. Yeah, that, that you know, was a Masquerade Garden show. You know, it was, I mean, it was the, it was a cap center from from uh, Landover, and uh, again, Adonis tremendous in this era as well. So him and Backlund, of course, had some good stuff. I I don't think I gave that match enough credit if I gave it three and a quarter stars. Um, I know that sounds very nerdy <laughs> of me saying no. Now I think it's three and three quarter, but I do. Um, and it was one of Backlund's easily one of his five best title matches that are available on on. Andre, there you go. Film. Hell of a match. After that, we get Texas Death Match from the month earlier, the Massacre Garden uh, for the Continental title, where Pedro regained the title from Morocco in a three and a half star bloody brawl. Um, were you con- were you surprised Pedro regained the title here from Morocco? I was shocked. Um, no, no one had ever regained the Intercontinental title before, and. I mean, Morales did a really good job with the title from, you know, fall of 81 through losing it to Morocco again, January 83. Uh, He did a really good job carrying that title the second time around. But I also think there could be an argument made to using that title to get someone else over. Um, And I thought I thought that's the direction they were going to go in. Um, I kind of figured that Tony Atlas was going to be the guy who won it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, somebody who was a younger guy who was needing that extra push, you know, definitely makes sense. Yeah. And even though Morales did a really good job and it drew, you could also argue that maybe Atlas would have done a better job and maybe would have drew drawn better. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next, we get Backlund and Valentine from Massacre Garden in 1981, October. Weird finish. Backlund pinned Valentine to rep up, but the day's referee raised back Valentine's hand, declared him the new champion. At the further review, the New York State Athletic Commission declared the title vacant, only in New York, as Backlund defended the title in other cities, in order to rematch to declare a champion. Now, you say here, I'm going to get you to talk about this, the original plan was that Valentine win the rematch and have David Sammartino groomed to be the new champion. Thank God they ditched that plan. Talk to us about that theory there. Okay. couple of things. I don't mean to go off the rails. I have a, a webcast, uh, a web a podcast with my friend Sean Goodwin. It's called Stick to Wrestling. And 
the last, the last, not the last show we did, but the show before came out right after Valentine's Day, and we did an entire hour on Greg Valentine. So if you're interested in that, you just put "stick to wrestling" in Google, and it'll come up. Um, first of all, I don't think that fi- I thought that finish was bizarre when I originally saw it, and it has not aged well <laughs> at all. That I don't, whoever came up with that was just getting a little too crazy. Um, as far as David Sammartino winning the title, <laughs> you, Chris, you must have printed this off a long time ago or saved it a long time ago because I specifically took that off my site because I, I was getting an email a day asking for a further explanation. Yeah, the, one I, the one I got and from, here's the from one I got is from uh, March 2000. Okay. Yeah, I, I at some point I specifically took that down because I got tired <laughs> of explaining it. Um, but here's what happened, and I won't name names, but I became friendly with someone who worked for the WWF as a TV jobber for a long time. And he told me that that was the plan, that they were going to put the title on Greg Valentine, and he was going to get a superstar Billy Graham type WWF title, David Sammartino in with Bruno by his side, and David was eventually going to win the WWF title, which honestly, and this is going to surprise a lot of people, was not as bad an idea as you probably think. It's not a good idea, but just by being just by being Bruno's kid, you're going to be huge in the Northeast, or at least he, he should have been. Um, I think by the time they got David in here, which I want to say is late '84, uh, by that point it was a new audience. It was the Hulk Hogan audience who didn't care about Bruno's kid. But if if David had been born five years earlier, I really do think he would have been a huge star just because he was Bruno's kid. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I was told, and uh, I, I no longer believe that that was going to happen. Um, at one point, I totally believed it because this guy told me. Uh, I no longer believe it because Greg Valentine, who has done multiple shoot interviews, has never mentioned it, as, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, that was this was the only time, the first, really only time I've ever heard this theory was on was reading your list about that. So that was, that's definitely interesting. The information you had now, the match itself, that finish, uh, that is a creative finish for a WWF match. Isn't it in this era? It's a creative finish for any, anywhere. You know, I remember the very first time, Chris, I ever did a podcast with, yeah. with you and we talked about Butch Reed it was like three hours dedicated to mm-hmm. nothing but Butch Reed. And we talked about uh, the scenario with the North American title where it switched from like Reed to Magnum to Volkoff. JYD. And, and Bill Watts just got way mm-hmm. crazy with that whole overcomplicated title scenario. And it, this reminds me of that. They just got a little too cute. And at the end of the day, it's like, why did they do it? I, I always thought that they did it so that – Valentine in the rematch for the held up title could beat Backlund by count out or something. And Hey, he's the champion now, but they didn't even do that. No, no, not at all. It's a weird deal altogether, huh? So, so that's why like part of me thinks it's possible that, yeah, they were planning on doing this and then they changed their minds abruptly, maybe because Ric Flair was NWA champion and he and Valentine were too similar. 
But the, at the end of the day, I mean, Backlund didn't mention anything in his book either. I think, you know, I just got bad information. Maybe, maybe. You never know. And the last match on this tape, Pat Patterson against King Kong Mosca, Angela Mosca, also from the Garden, October 1981. And for a guy who was basically kind of reti- retired in Patterson, he had two of the more famous angles in the WF that year. Slaughter in the in the, in the spring of '81, and they're here with Mosca with the ice pitcher. Uh, that's, that's interesting how that worked out, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, Patterson, you know, they they treated him well. I mean, he was brought in with the idea that he was going to stay long term and be part of you know the transition from Vince Senior to Vince Junior. And like I said, they treated him well, and he he deserved it. I mean, let's face it, he's got a great wrestling mind. And, yeah, they they did give him two of the best wrestling angles of 1981, including that one. Um, Not to talk about my own podcast (laughs) too often, but this starting this Thursday, we are going to have a a series of podcasts, probably, uh, talking about nothing but WWF in 1981. Great year. And these usually go like four or five hours, so we'll be probably doing four or five episodes on that. But yeah, it was a it was a really cool angle with Mosca. Just Patterson. What happened was they had Angelo Mosca against this guy Victor Mercado, and Mosca for weeks had been pulling his opponents up like at the two count. And Dick Worley finally had enough, and he disqualified Mosca. Well, Pat Patterson, who'd been railing against this, comes out to interview Worley. And he's all, you did the right thing, Dick. And all of, out of nowhere, this water pitcher <laughs> comes slamming down on Patterson's head. Water is flying everywhere. They got a great picture of it in one of them after magazines. And I remember at the time saying, wow, why is this guy beating up Pat Patterson? Patterson didn't do anything to him, but at the same time, it was cool. Yeah, definitely interesting stuff. And yes, folks, whatever those 81 podcasts drop, listen to them because – John, I mean, he, he's he turned me on to the 81 WWF stuff on his tape list years ago, and it is it is a great year, and there's a ton of on WWF Network now, so definitely go check that out on the All-Star Wrestling shows and, and on WWF Network to see see all these great angles and all this cool stuff that was going on as they were transitioning into a different era, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had just uh, remastered my 1981 WWF stuff like this fall, and I've been wanting to do the show. I wanted to open up 2019 with it, and we just kept getting pushed back and pushed back because stuff yeah, would happen. Yeah, I know that goes. And I think it's finally <laughs> going to happen starting this week. No, I know, you know how that, that goes. <laughs> hey, real life, man, interferes with trying to do stuff sometimes, man. You know, you don't have all the time you think you can have. Something comes up, something happens, and, you know, things get rescheduled. I mean, that's the way it is in the podcast world. Like I said, it's amazing to have me and Bix have done three years of Between the Sheets every week and not had a, missed a week, you know, so <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's somehow we, we, we've soldiered through it, believe me. Oh, I, I mean, just today I was a pain in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> we had Tennessee and LSU going to overtime, so I was 15 minutes late. Well, you were fine. You were fine. We, we, we both were watching the same thing, so it was understandable. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, but I mean, I'll tell you, it, it, it's a whole new world when you start doing podcasts. You don't really realize, like, things go wrong. Oh, yeah. And that's just the way it is. Just a, 
let, I mean, I'm kind of letting out a, a little bit of a secret here, but Sean and I have a hidden episode. We call it Episode X, just in case we can't make the deadline for whatever reason. We're not going to. Well, hey, that's a great. That's a great idea. <laughs> I wish I would thought of something like that. <laughs> I've had this. Well, you guys, are you guys like on a on a like a tight schedule? I mean, I know this uh, between the sheets kind of comes out when it comes it every out, Monday. Right? Yeah, every Monday we we had the new a new episode drop, so we have we have to get it done, and plus we have to do a Patreon show every month, so we have to have that done before the end of the month. So yeah, we we have we have our right. our time limits of doing things, and we gotta make sure we get it done. That's for sure, because if we don't, we've had episodes drop later than normal, and yeah, they will be, our listeners will blow up our inboxes on Twitter or Facebook. So, Where's the show? Where's the show? Gotta have the show. So, <laughs> you know. Stick to Wrestling comes out at midnight. And one week it came out at like 1.30 in the morning or something yeah. like that. And I had people asking me where the <laughs> Exactly, show was. exactly. It's understandable. But you know what? It, great. it is great. And it shows that you're appreciated. So, that's, and it's awesome that, that people that care that they care that much. That's the way I look at it. You know, it's not, it doesn't bother me. Just, you know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm glad that you're that devoted to listening to the show. So we, we definitely thank you. And we thank all the people that listen. I definitely yeah, thank, we thank everybody that listens to this show for sure. And, uh, you know, God knows you plugged it, uh, numerous times on the show, but I guess you can plug it real quick again, uh, plug, uh, your podcast. Well, I, yeah, I don't mean to overdo <laughs> it, but yeah, you know, if you, if you enjoy listening to this show, uh, when I am the host and thank you for having me on Chris, uh, you know, you'll probably enjoy stick to wrestling. Uh, it is a wicked good podcast where we kind of spoof that new England word <laughs> wicked, which means very yeah. good. Um, and yeah, you know, we talk about various things and we keep it to 60 minutes a week. We always say, if you give it 60 minutes, we'll give you a wicked good podcast. There you go. There you go. Got a, a catchphrase and everything. Can't beat that. And, uh, when me and John hook it back up again in another month or so. We'll be going to volume eight and a quick tease on there is, uh, we got a lot of, uh, good stuff from different promotions. We got Georgia, we got Mid South, we got Florida. And yes, we have Southwest Championship Wrestling. Can't wait to talk about that stuff. And, uh, we'll, I'll definitely say we'll do volume eight. We may get volume nine in or not. We'll see. But volume eight is definitely another one of my favorite tastes I got from John back in the day. So we'll talk about that in a month. So John, I definitely appreciate having you on the show and uh, we'll do it again. So uh, thanks again. Thank you for having me on. And hopefully when we're uh, doing that show coming up in a month, I won't be crying in my soup about Tennessee <laughs> sitting at home. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. We got uh, March madness is on the way. So we'll see what happens by that time. As I watch my beloved Tar Heels uh, right now, against Florida state. So we'll, uh, fresh off beating Duke. So, We'll see what happens. All right. For John, this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.